On today's show, we dive even deeper into the rivalry between DC and Marvel Comics. Do do Marvel Comics uh, appreciate higher than your DC Comics? What does the latest auction results have to say? What do the um, biggest art dealers in the business have to say? We are going to share that with you today. Also, did I, once upon a time, being 19 years ago, did I sell a brand new comic book that I published? Did I sell it out of my trunk? Did I go store to store? Did I bypass the major distributors <laughs> and, and, and distribute it myself? Was I a disruptor? How many times can one disrupt the comic book business? You're going to find out what I did, how I did it, and how it all turned out on today's observations. And here we go again, yet another edition of Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld. These are my Rob Observations. I am so excited to hang out with you guys today and we can continue to discuss the never-ending topic that is comic books in pop culture because really that's that's it. Comic books in pop culture is the simplest way to explain just what the heck I am doing here uh, twice a week on this show. And, and, and here's the deal. If you're like me, uh, let's take today, you woke up this morning and because we're all programmed our social media and social media really has been the, the, the primary way that so many of us, you know, communicate with each other. Uh, maybe your first stop is Facebook. Maybe your stop first stop is Instagram. Maybe your first stop is email or it's Twitter. Mine is generally Twitter as that has become, uh, so, uh, popular in, in terms of, news breaks and, 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 and the way that, uh, that, that, you know, the, the, the news is shared, everyone races to get their stuff on Twitter. Well, so, so this morning, uh, being after a, a weekend, uh, the first thing I got was some breakdowns of the weekend's box office, which showed, uh, you know, not so great numbers for Morbius. But again, whenever I say that there's a Morbius, well, I mean, we had a discussion and I've done a dedicated podcast on uh it's called bring on the D list and it goes in great length. I, it's, it's one of my, um, uh, the, the, the podcast that I was like, I got to really, uh, roll up my, my, my sleeves here and get all of the information. And I was running down old article articles. I was going, uh, Google crazy being very Google specific. And I got all of the data on the bring on the D list, uh, podcast, which showed how the financial markets were positioning everyone in the financial sector to look at Marvel prior to them raising money, which they would then go on and use and make the first Iron Man film, the second Iron Man film, Cap, Thor, all, all before they were um, purchased by by Disney. And, and, and the Bring on the D-List podcast tells you how the Wall Street Journal, a, a, a financial paper named Barron's, um, how they said that all Marvel has left is the D-list, C or D-list, which is what they referred to as Cap or Iron Man or Thor because they believed that the primary pieces in the Marvel catalog, the X-Men universe, the Fantastic Four universe, the Spider-Man universe were spoken for. So, uh, and, and, and now we all look back and we realize that with the, the credibility these studios have been given, that they can turn a character. I mean, there is no more, I mean, I gotta be honest, Peacemaker and Morbius are kind of legit, you know, D-list characters in the comic book world. But you then put a a B-plus level talent either behind the chair as the director or a star, and you actually spend in 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 the range of a hundred million dollars, and you're gonna bring that character to life, and that character is gonna get attention, and it's no longer D-list. There was a former editor of one of the more popular websites about twenty years back. Uh, before it kind of hit a curb and 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 went off a cliff, uh, but that editor wrote a thing about you know the fact that are there really any D-list characters anymore? Given that what I just said, you put an actor and a director and and finan- financing behind it, and suddenly it's it 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 rises above the fray. But Morbius for for real, like he's a C-list. Like you know, I can't put him above Doc Ock and Green. Goblin, or even when he was a dedicated Spider-Man villain before he kind of put another foot in the Daredevil universe, Kingpin. I mean, you know, Morbius, <laughs> I'm not sure I can put him above 
vulture or lizard, but but he's a cool character. And and one of my favorite Spider-Man stories of all time is the origin of Morbius with the lizard when Peter Parker gets the six arms, and uh, it's it's beautifully uh, illustrated and written. And and uh, I mean, I, I so so I've got to kind of go soft on Morbius, but that doesn't change the fact that I did indeed read box office receipts for Morbius. So so that was the first thing that came at me today in my inbox. Then I got a notification that the Batman film, the Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson Batman film, would be coming home to my HBO Max on Monday, April 18th. I will be able to watch Batman in the comfortable in the comfort comfort of my own home with my badass recliners that I invested in ironically right before the pandemic. So that the I mean I, I have state of the art like movie theater badass recliners. They are uh I mean, <laughs> when my friends have their, 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 when my kids, sorry, my kids have their friends over, it's rad because, you know, my one son's friend, I mean, none of them are under six feet. They're these giant six, four, six, five. And so they don't all fit as comfortably as they may, maybe could or littler people like myself and my wife. But uh, normally you can get like three people on a recliner. And so we can fit like nine on these different three different uh, sofa recliners, but not, not the giants that, 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 that's legit impossible with my son and his you know all of his nba sized friends but uh the thing is that uh batman is coming home to me uh i guess six or seven weeks after it opened i'll be able to watch it here in the house via hbo max and uh, i'm very excited so that's morbius check that box if that's batman check that box and then i got another doctor strange teaser and a bunch of posters that dropped to all the major websites so comicbook.com uh, Collider, IGN, uh, uh, um, come on, who, who, who is that? Uh, Fandango, all these guys, they're all dropping this, uh, the, the, these, these posters with, with, uh, Cumberbatch and, you know, Elizabeth Olsen and all of the different cast. And, and again, it's, it's an attention drop. It's Monday, baby. It's Monday. Boom. So I got Batman. I got Morbius. I got Dr. Strange as the sand was coming out of my eyes. Okay. Like I was just you know, waking up and I already got three major superhero, uh, stories, um, uh, uh, you know, <sighs> thrown my way. So there you go. Um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just the way of the world now, you know, who knows what tomorrow will bring. I mean, oh, I also got news that a Thor, is it love and thunder? Is that the name of the fourth Thor movie is it, we're going to get a trailer soon that, 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 that was blurted out. And while I am doing this podcast, I, I can assure you, that there will be more comic book pop culture news that that really kind of sorta eclipses the actual comic books, um, which you know, then kind of whittles down our audience, our genre. But that's how I prefer it. I like to be in the weeds with the actual source material. I always have, I always will. But again, this podcast becomes even more um, fun to do because of how much is going on in this world. Where again, you know. But before I even sat upright, you know, because come on, we're, we're basically in the morning, you know, when you roll over and you grab your phone and you check the headlines and first of all, you check to see if we're all still here. There's some, some terrible, you know, uh, 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 virus hasn't, hasn't, hasn't broken overnight and, 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 and no nukes were fired. Then we get straight to the comic book pop news. Okay. So there you go. I am always uh, searching for what what to bring you each and every podcast. I try and mix it up stuff that I like uh, that maybe, you know, isn't the, the most uh, pertinent, you know, topic in the moment. Case in point, my sword and sorcery stuff. I've done a bunch of those. Don't worry. There's, there's no sword and sorcery coming today. <laughs> you know, I've had actual retailers, fans say, I don't, I don't buy shirtless characters. That's, that's my, that's my favorite of all the kind of acknowledgements is I don't buy shirtless characters. I, my, my one, retail buddy can tell me right now Kazar, Killraven, Conan, Cole, uh, Korak, did I say Tarzan? He's like, I'll have none of them. If they don't have a shirt on, they don't move the needle. People don't want to buy them. It's the funniest observation I've heard, but, but there you go. There it is. And, and there it will be. So today I am going to tell you a little bit about a process with which I gave myself over to, which occurred uh, I mean, good God, 19 years ago, but it was my version of being, uh, 
another level of disruptor. I mean, we're in the 30th anniversary of the Image Comics movement, which I believe you would look back now and you would see, you know, that we were in fact disruptors because we took the 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 we broke the mold and we shifted the way that the audience was consuming. And again, I don't know about any of you, but but we are being deluged right now, uh, especially via the streaming applications with so many uh, uh, of, the, of these bio series, uh, biopic series, which is, uh, you know, the, the We Crash, which is about WeWork, which has got Jared Leto, which has got, you know, Anne Hathaway. Um, you know, we, we've got the, uh, the Elizabeth Holmes uh, saga, which is the dropout that has wrapped on Hulu. We had the uh, Anna Delvey story uh, on Netflix. And uh, I mean, what is it about the mid of the 2000s that suddenly caused everybody to, to be open to any and all scams? And, and, and yet, and they all kind of fell under each, if, if you look at each of them, they're thinking they're disrupting the way that things are done, even if they are bald-faced lying about what they are capable of, with, as, as is the case with Theranos. So, so again, back to comic books, I truly believe we were uh, uh, a certain level of disruption. And so uh, the bottom line is that uh, that was the first kind of level of disruption that I really was a part of in, in regards to Image Comics, given that we, and, and we've discussed this on different podcasts um, maybe I have a podcast called The Marvel Zombie. I'm not sure, but but that was the thing that we broke. And if you're not familiar and this is your first time listening, The Marvel Zombie is not a derogative ter- term that I have created. It is an actual term that Marvel used for their own fans that was developed and really keyed in the 80s. And the sales department and the editorial department would refer to this term often. The Marvel Zombie was someone who only bought Marvel books. So it's like they did not have any interest in anything other than Marvel, so hence the Marvel Zombie. The Marvel Zombies uh, comic book series that you got in the 2000s from Robert Kirkman with with uh, you know all those different um, Splinter spinoffs after after he launched that was, um, was a play on the fact that this was a term in-house in Marvel and very much an industry term. Because DC would be like, how do we break into the Marvel Zombie? They walk in and they only pick the Marvel comics off the shelf. Retailers will tell you that that's an absolute thing. And uh, and DC, you know, rivals like DC Comics would confirm. And where Image Comics succeeded time and again was that the people that were buying all the Marvel comics shifted effortlessly to Image, jumping over DC or anything else. They just went straight to Image and kept Marvel in their portfolio and added... Uh, you know, the Image Comics assortment to their pull list. And and literally for years, I mean, every Image book had a certain base level launch because of that level of interest that we were able to create as we generated the excitement that came with Image Comics. So that was disruption number one. And again, just getting back to the Marvel zombie of it all. I mean, even this past weekend, the um, latest Heritage auction came and went. And of course, the biggest prices are all assigned to Marvel items. The number one selling page in that auction was a Jack Kirby Captain America splash page from Tales of Suspense. The number, I, I didn't you know, commit it to memory before I came on, but it's a Captain America splash page, Tales of Suspense, Jack Kirby, you know, the guy that gave you the visualization along with jo- Joel Simon created Captain America. Uh, it went for $630,000. Monster, monster price. Prior to it going live, it was in the 200,000 range. It exploded for 400 extra thousand dollars as people um, really, you know, aggressively watching it in real time went for this thing and really wanted to be the last man standing. The two biggest comic books, because Heritage also then pivots to high grade comic books, was uh, Captain uh, Captain America, number one, which uh, went for $3 million. Yes, $3 million for a, I think it's a 9.6, 9.4, maybe one of those two. It wasn't a 9.8, but it's way up there. And then a 9.2, a, a, a still in the nines, Fantastic Four, that went for $1.5 million, if memory serves. Anyway, $3 million, $1 million, you know, $30,000 for this Captain America page. The common denominator between all of them is Marvel. In several of the different discussion groups that I'm a part of, people were um, talking about how there clearly seems to be a disparity between 
DC prices and Marvel prices. And I can tell you, you know, sometimes you go 10, 10 years, a decade without hearing, you know, something shared with you. And then it's one giant slap in the face as I received in 2018 when I was on the, on the convention tour, uh, really pushing Deadpool 2 and, 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 and getting the word out for, for the Deadpool sequel. That in my downtime, I wandered over to one of the uh, biggest uh, art dealers, Nostalgic Investments. They are, I would say, a square, they're a contender for top art dealer or number two art dealer uh, in, in, in the United States of America that I have you know, come in contact with in the last 20 years. They have millions of dollars in their collection of high-end pieces, and that's the stuff that they will show with show you on the floor or show you. You know, every collector has stuff that they're not bringing out to show you. They don't want to share it. They don't want to sell it. They don't want to even have it sniffed. But just in what is shared, I mean, we're talking nostalgic investments probably drops 15 portfolios at every show and then has a giant wall of probably 60 or more uh, covers behind them. I mean, this is high-end, high-end work. And I was um, going through some of the pages back in 2018 and viewing some by my favorite artists. And I'm like, hey, why is this, you know, $3,000 and this page is 12? And he goes, Rob, that's a Marvel page and that's a DC page. Marvel art goes for more. It just does. And the it just does implies like you just have to accept this. In the recent auction, uh, X-Men art by Jim Lee was much more favored than DC art. There was 40, it seemed like, okay, 20 DC Batman pieces by Jim. And they were, you know, there was covers that were going for uh, $16,000. There were were covers going for 20 grand, which is a lot. These are car prices. Okay. These are, you can get a car. So excuse me if I'm, if I I, I want to be respectful of the prices and, and, and say them in the, in the, in the manner that they belong, but they're not $630,000. They're not $150,000 prices. These are, these are in the, in the high-end art world, the, the, the DC Batman stuff. I mean, a Batman and Robin cover by Jim Lee was a $17,000, purchase. Whereas a Wolverine, woo, get ready to spend multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this disparity lies within your own favorite artist, George Perez. A George Perez Avengers page from 1978 will go in the tens of thousands of dollars. A George Perez uh, Titans page will go for $8,000. I mean, you're going to double that. You're going to double that if it's an Avengers page from a decade prior um, to, 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 to a Titans or a Crisis page. And that gets down to character, 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 which then gets down to company, company, company. And I don't make the rules. I'm just sharing them with you. Uh, we, we've talked that, that, I mean, the most potent character in DC's arsenal is Batman until there is a legit argument to be made that Joker is actually even more popular given the grosses for the final Joker film or anything that Joker ever wanders into. Uh, for a period, it was seen that Harley Quinn was in that on that same ledge. She is not. The, the, the returns on any Harley Quinn-related um, stuff, uh, there's now been three feature films, and, and they don't match up to anything regarding Batman and or Joker. So that, that idea was... Um, that, 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 that was an idea that just did not bear uh, a concrete outcome. Uh, uh, the facts are the facts and, and the numbers still, uh, you know, bear out that Batman and then Joker and maybe Joker above Batman is, is the two biggest weapons in their, their intellectual property article. And, you know, again, we spoke recently of the DC comics, you know, tumultuous, um, you know, decade. And, and the funny thing is, again, you know, I, 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 uh, I, uh, I, I wandered in and and I uh, again as as I was perusing my beautiful Twitter accounts, um, you know I, I I saw in my feed and I reshared it a uh, reporter uh, from uh, let's see who does Mister from from Bloomberg from Bloomberg you know a much more reputable source than observations right um, Bloomberg uh, shared uh, a tweet. That said, uh, the writer from Bloomberg, Lucas Shaw, on Twitter said, I devoted most of this week's newsletter to the big merger in Hollywood, Warner Brothers Media plus Discovery equals Warner Brothers Discovery. A $43 billion deal. That means Warner Brothers, CNN, and HBO have had their third owner in six years. Not a decade, in six years. So also, 
drop DC Comics right into that, okay? Warner, CNN, HBO, and then I, he didn't, but I will, add DC Comics, third owner in six years. The only constant every time is that the most important asset is Batman. And, you know, the bottom line is, you know, you can swing for the fences, and certainly there have been management that has swung for the fences, but it was under Dan DiDio. The reason I go so hard on him is he had a decade to change the culture, and he didn't. All he did was create the culture that that DC Comics is really more Batman than anything else because they desperately needed to. And I have uh, kind of really drawn this out if you go back, and I know so many of you guys are going back and listening to former episodes. The the episode about DC New 52 and my experiences there, and I had a success. I was I had a good time. So, so my experience with the DC 52 was positive, but behind the scenes, it was the most insane period in the history of my time in comic books. And by that time I had been well over 20 years in the comic business and I experienced uh, temperamental and uh, inconsistencies, it, it just uh, outbursts and just a, a, a big bowl of crazy, unlike anything that I had ever experienced, but it did not change the fact that it was that period that leaned all the way in and transformed DC into this mostly Batman-centric company. But and even when they turn into Batman-centric, they cannot break the Marvel zombie. And that is because, plain and simple, as, it, as, as, as once I say it, you'll see it, it's the families. Marvel has more families. The Spider-Man family may not be operating on all cylinders, but the X-Men family might. And if the X-Men family isn't operating on all cylinders, maybe the Avengers family is. And now, you know, uh, again, Spider-Man family means offshoots of Venom and Carnage, and obviously the X-Men is huge and has under its umbrella the Wolverine titles, Deadpool titles. Avengers family can go as far as Thor, Cap, Iron Man, all the way to Doctor Strange and beyond. And there's other families. I mean, there's fa- the, 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 the Conan family of books launched big, the Star Wars family of books. Marvel has five to six families at any time that it can get to fire at full power, and just one of those families can really carry the line uh, of late, as we've discussed, just a kind of a, a recap of what's been going on since, you know, the new year launched. Marvel continues, and this is the retailers telling me I am only a vessel sharing with you. I do not own a store, but when I talk to all of my retail contacts, they tell me, and not all these guys like each other or know each other, and they're all competitive with each other, but they all sing the same song, and the same song is that Marvel is providing them with new number ones, new launches that are exciting the fan base. Iron Fist, She-Hulk, Moon Knight, Ghost Rider, the new take on The Punisher. Each one of these, uh, Doctor Strange, each one of these has launched at a significant uh, amount that has been able to carry momentum for Marvel, while in the meantime, again, DC is having a problem kind of, you know, there's, there's, there, there certainly is a, a feeling that there's been a failure of launch all of a sudden. And my sympathy goes to them because of the turnover. Three different bosses in six years. I kept giving it a broad stroke of a decade, but really when you get right down to it, it's, it's six years of just dramatic, dramatic changeover in, in, in regards to DC management. So back to the disruptor status that I was able to achieve and I'm going to give you a little behind the scenes because really what this gets down to, this was one of the funnest periods of my life. And, 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 you know, you're going to find out why as I carry this story forward. So I had retired in 2000. We were pregnant with my, we, my wife, come on. She'd probably be uh, uh, offended that I said we, my wife was pregnant with our first child. Uh, Luke Liefeld was, uh, it was known that we were pregnant in the fall of 1999 that we would be welcoming our uh, our firstborn child in the spring of uh, of 2000, and so I basically decided after I did uh, my Wolverine stories, uh, which was like Wolverine 154, 155, the Deadpool stuff, um, then a Spider-Man team up because Marvel had asked me. Uh, I was actually you know driving to a Lamaze class. I don't know if they still do those, but when you 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 kind of go and and, and learn all these kind of uh, coping. Uh, mechanisms to be a good partner and help your, you know, wife, uh, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I actually got a call from Marvel saying, hey, we lost uh, Steve Scrooge, who is now going back to do the Matrix films. He had storyboarded the first Matrix with the Wachowskis. He was going back to join them for the second and had to leave the Wolverine post behind. They said, would you come in and fill in for us? And I said, sure. And those books all 
ran their that they, they launched before 2000 hit before January 2000. And so I was able to get all those done in the fall and uh and and and, and late summer and fall get those Wolverine 154 155 156 157 and I was out and I retired. I retired for 3 years. I did not do anything comic book related related. I feel uh, I've said it often uh, that the doctor in Blade Runner who says to Roy, you have the light that burns so very bright, uh, burn, b- b- burns um, twice as, as fast, and you have burned so very bright, Roy. And that's how I felt the 90s were. We burned so bright that our wick burned out faster. And I needed a, you know, some rest. And I got it. It was fun. You know, we started popping out babies again. Sorry with the we. Uh, I, I'm there to help form the child, of course. Uh, but 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 my two boys were born 2000 2002, and we would welcome my daughter in 2004. But during 2000 to 2003, I did not produce comics. I did not participate in comics. If I did a cover during that time, that was a weird anomaly. I don't really remember it. But I took a step back and observed the changes of the guard. The new um, you know, coming out of bankruptcy leadership that Marvel had, the new handling um, uh, uh, of leadership at, at DC, where it was very obvious that Paul Levitz was segueing out of his longtime uh, role as publisher and and giving it to a very aggressive uh, figure named Dan DiDio, <clears throat> which again would change over again when Jim got the co-publishing, Jim Lee got the co-publishing slot alongside Dan. So I was just watching all this. And I was reading a lot of news, but I was enjoying comics. I was still going to comic stores. And the only thing that was really exciting me for Marvel at the time was anything written by Mr. Mark Miller. You may mispronounce it as I did for so long, Millar, because it's spelled M-I-L-L-A-R. And we're so used to seeing Miller as Frank Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. But Mark Millar, Mark Miller. Uh, was the guy that I thought was the very best guy in comics. He um, did a stint on the authority following Warren Ellis. And to, for me, uh, it, 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 his authority sparked something that I hadn't felt since I fell in love with the X-Men in the 70s. I thought he and Frank quietly combined to produce a, a, an energy that was like the Claremont Burn run of yore, <laughs> the classic stuff that everybody still worships and and, and holds in the highest regard. That's the vibe I got. I thought, man, this is exciting. It's visually stunning. The ideas are crazy. The ideas, the visuals, that's all you need. And his um, scripting, his dialogue was really um, uh, just a pleasure to read. I thought Mark was outstanding. He had done a Superman, the animated series comic prior to this, but this was his chance to shine. Marvel then cons- just um, flew right in and, and, and picked him up. I was having uh, lunch with Bill Jemis, who was part of the, the publishing faction that was taking over Marvel in the early 2000s, the post-bankruptcy, coming out of bankruptcy, Bill Jemis. Um, he combined along with Casada, they called them Quemus, because he wanted to have such a giant say. But Bill Jemis was, uh, in fact, the publisher and uh, <clears throat> was carried a lot of weight. He asked to have lunch with me in Chicago of 2000. I was finishing up, again, um, uh, uh, or I was just engaging in the Wolverine issues, and, and uh, this was like late late August, and and they were starting to roll out, and and I was telling him about my intent to, to to retire and to take some time off, and I was telling him the guys that really turned my crank, and I mentioned Mark, and he's like, oh, we got him, we got him, we got him. He's he's leaving the authority, he's coming to work for Marvel, which I was very excited by, and Mark made his mark on first Ultimate X Men, but then as we all know, the Ultimates, which I think my board my wife to tears the other night while we were at the uh, the restaurant, telling her how uh, Mark's first, those first 12 issues of Ultimates just rocked the comic book world. It was a um, kind of a culmination of all the stuff that people liked in the 90s with the stuff that people would know to like in the early 2000s, which is a little slowing down, a little more character nuance. But, I mean, you gave Cap, you know, more pouches, belts, straps, guns, goggles. Cap became more unified as a soldier. There was a, The Ultimates was a, was a team that suddenly had a lot of gear, and you know where I stand in regards to gear, and the Avengers have always been defined as the team that had all the weapons. You should listen to my uh, one of my X-Men podcasts when I break down the arm the arm throwers and the temple touchers that they were prior to Wolverine coming on board. 
their pure and simple, their, their powers were very dull in comparison to the sword of the swordsmen, the hammer of Thor, the shield of Cap, the arrows of Hawkeye, the, um, the line, you know, the, 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 uh, Black Widow had a line that she fired out. Um, look, all of the Avengers seem to have be weaponized, and 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 until the, you know, until Wolverine with the X Men, it, it it they they were not. They were flapping wings, touching their temples, uh, outstretching their arm to to put forth their power on you. The Avengers were always more dynamic, and then the Ultimates, alongside Brian Hitch, who I think kind of was at his apex of his style and his and his um, execution of his of his abilities. That that first twelve issues of Ultimates just rocked my world. So from Authority to Ultimates, I just thought I thought Mark Miller was just a phenomenon. And and I've said openly on this podcast, I believe he and and Robert Kirkman are the two significant voices of the two thousands. The guys that 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 have made the most impact and helped shape the decade that we were just in. They did. They went beyond just witty banter and repartee and and realized that comics are about more than twenty two pages of guys talking and trying to out. Um, you know, Tarantino, each other with their dialogue or um, David Mamet, which come on, given the recent revelations of David Mamet, some of these guys who put him aloft are just are that they're just reeling because it's it's hilarious. Um, Mamet, a playwright turned like, you know, screenwriter, uh, excellent author has 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 come forward with with some views that have got some of these guys who um, who 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 backed him and, and, and lauded him for so long now quietly stepping aside. But Comics were never about people spouting dialogue back and forth at each other and, and whippy, w- <laughs> witty repartee. Um, Mark got it. He had big imaginative ideas, concepts, and he teamed himself with very, very visual artists who were able to pull all this stuff off. And um, they put it forth on, 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 on the paper in a way that was as electric, electrifying to me as the stuff that I loved in my youth, the, the, what would be called the Bronze Age of comics. So one day... I did the craziest thing. I asked Mark if he would write a story for me. He would be kind of my 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 comeback vehicle if he would team with me and write Youngblood. Mark said yes. There was uh, one email exchange. He wasn't under an exclusive. He was able to do it. From there, I, I, I decided I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to go crazy pants on putting forth the distribution of this book. I spoke to a, a, a friend of mine named Jimmy J. He's been on the guest. He's been a guest on this show many times. He has the uh, amazing comic conventions. If you've been to an amazing comic convention in Vegas or Hawaii or um, Arizona, th- those are Jimmy and, and his family shows. And uh, he, prior to that, and he was, you know, a re- retailing exclusively at this time. We decided we would go in on a label, we would partner on the label that would publish uh, characters and cat- ca- characters from my catalog that I owned, and we would partner on on a label called Arcade Comics, and Arcade Comics would be distributed from just Jimmy and myself. We circumvented the distribution network. We decided now more than ever would be the time to give this a shot. That literally, it would give me my dream, and I would tell guys at Extreme all the time, my, my studio that I had, that I would love to be a traveling salesman and travel from store to store and sell, you know, what I believe to be viable, fresh comic books out of the trunk of my car. Well, guess what? That happened. I did that. Okay? Um, Mark wrote Youngblood Bloodsport, this wild kind of uh, Hunger Games before the Hunger Games. It was very much um, uh, Battle Royale, which had been a you know, uh, a popular manga, uh, live action, uh, movie in, 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 in Japan, very much like put all the heroes, um, in a situation and pit them against each other for the, you know, the, 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 the last man standing award. He who is last standing will be the ultimate young blood. So that's kind of the overview that Mark came up with, but he was clever and it was interesting and it took, took place in a kind of near future where these characters um, were concerned. And I uh, grabbed this uh, in 2003 and did not look back and drew my ass off and was having the time of my life knowing that I had this giant project with who I believed to be the most important writer in comics at the time. I really felt like he was the Tarantino to my John Travolta. That's how it felt. Like, you know, 
Travolta had that huge run of success uh, that, that that went from Saturday Night Fever to Greece to beyond that. And uh, I mean, he had he had so many hits, and then he kind of uh, you know went away for a little while. He had these those huge the the the, the I think they're called Look Who's Talking, the, the Talking Baby movies. Those were gigantic. He was, you know, he was the lead actor in all of those. I think Bruce Willis was the voice of the baby. Uh, Kirstie Alley was in them. Maybe not all of them. I'm, 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 you know, but but then 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 Travolta went away. But Tarantino brought him back to full glory in Pulp Fiction. Uh, he even danced for us. He he just activated every you know button that that got us to be responsive to seeing John Travolta in the best possible light again. So I figured this would be the perfect way to um, enter. I mean, I've got my favorite writer. He said yes, and I'm going to do this kind of futuristic Youngboat story, and we're going to sell it directly to consumer, direct to consumer. So direct to consumer is the world that we live in right now. It's the world uh, that, that I just absolutely love interacting with because I don't have to go anywhere to get quality Entertainment. I've already mentioned the dropout. We crash. Let's go, you know, with Severance or For All Mankind, the entire library of Apple shows. So much of what's on Netflix. I mean, I have watched Vikings Valhalla multiple times. I love the storytelling, the characters, the action, the violence, the stakes. I dig all of it. Um, you know, Hulu's got the dropout. It's got, uh, uh, you know, the girl from Plainville that I'm currently watching. Um, HBO Max has got winning time. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's got, uh, just all, all manner of, of shows, uh, that the flight attendant, um, I mean, all of these great shows that I get these, you know, amazing talents, amazing writers, amazing directors, amazing actors, actresses, and they all come into my room where I go back to my previously, you know, praised, uh, lauded recliners. That's the sound. Mm, it's a little smoother than that. Mm, as I go all the way back, and I'm boom, and then the big giant 4K TV comes on, and my sound, and I don't have to go to the theater. And and in the pandemic, kind of, it did. Old man Liefeld was felled by the new technology and all the bitching stuff that is getting beamed straight into my eyeball eyeballs from my living room from my bedroom and from my family room because we are not hard up for um, beautiful, uh, you know, 4K screen technology and big, 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 big screens, okay? So I have actually, um, unfortunately, fallen to uh, victim to the fact that I don't really enjoy going to the theater as much as I used to. This is where you go, oh, get off my lawn old man but come on a lot of you guys are are doing the same thing and trust me at least i'm watching this on like 80 inch televisions my kids will be like oh yeah i streamed the entire dropout on my phone what on your phone so this new generation is completely you know like what are you doing why are you watching that on your phone why are you watching that on your laptop we have giant four screen because they don't want to be around even their parents you know occasionally my son will be like i'll watch that new lakers show with you and it's like Oh, that's awesome. And we're all watching something together. Me, my wife, my son. It's awesome. But that's few and far between. Okay. Again, I got grown up kids. And if your kids aren't, guess what? They will. You're going to get there. It's only a matter of time before they're like, no, I'd rather watch this on my phone in my room. They're not going to theaters either. Now I am rooting for theaters to come back and I need to put my money where my mouth is. And trust me, I will be seeing Top Gun 2 in a theater. I will see Doctor Strange in a theater. I will see um, Love and Thunder, by th- th- the Thor movie. I'll see that in a theater. I am going, I'm going to see The Northman, the new Robert Eggers film with Alexander Skarsgård as a berserker raging Viking. How do I not, you know, go see that when I'm, completely hung up on all the Viking stuff that I'm getting here at the house. I'm going back to theaters, but maybe not as much as I used to. And the reason is because of direct to consumer. So much of what we get is beamed right into us, into our phone, our iPad, our, iPad, our laptop, our, 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 our home, you know, home theater. And, uh, I have stopped even if I kind of think maybe I have a Blu-ray in the house that can sometimes take 30 to 40 minutes of me scrounging around behind all the shelves, looking where they are. And I've just learned to don't even get up. Don't do it. Just go to Amazon, look it up, pay $2.99, $3.99, $4.99. Okay. I'm in that range, $6.99. Okay. Maybe I have a seven, $8 rooftop. Boom. Hit it. I get the email. You've purchased this. Boom. For the next 48 hours, I can just watch it on the TV because it'll save me time crawling around looking for my Blu-rays. 
direct-to-consumer is powerful, and I wanted to enact this with my Youngblood Bloodsport Mark Miller written Rob Liefeld illustrated, but we would also include another comic book in that. In 1996, I hired a writer named Kurt Busiek, B-U-S-I-E-K. If I'm saying it wrong, I'm not aware. Busiek, Busiek. Uh, Kurt had been uh, bumping around in the comic book industry, writing for Eclipse Comics and some of the smaller publishers since I worked at a comic store. I remember selling his books, ordering books, because I thought he had some cool ideas when he was doing books for Eclipse and First Comics. And uh, and, and then he kind of hit the big time when he was paired with Alex Ross on Marvels. And that turned everyone's heads. And the writing was a really nice compliment to the beautiful pictures that Alex Ross envisioned. During that time, Kurt probably had the biggest um, glow up of his career because Marvels was so critically lauded. We had him out to Extreme Studios. He sat in the chair in my office with my editor-in-chief, Eric Stevenson, with Matt Hawkins. We discussed possibilities, stuff we would want him to write. I asked him to do a take on Youngblood Year One, uh, taking kind of the same look uh, that he gave to the Marvel Universe, to the Extreme Universe, via the formation of my Youngblood comic book. Well, Kurt wrote two full issues of Youngblood Year One. I paid him for them. I had them on, you know, I had the physical manifestation of his script. At this point, stuff was still being mailed to people. We weren't in an email age yet where the scripts were downloaded via email until past 96, 97. So this is kind of the realm that I'm living in at the time. I hire Kurt. Kurt um, does a really nice job because I became very distracted and signed on to the Heroes Reborn deal, I was not able to pencil Youngblood Year One as I had committed. But those first two issues, over 50 pages of story and plot. Now, story and plot is where the story comes from. I have done dedicated episodes, again, um, recently, uh, speaking of when Steve Englehart, who created the Nomad identity for Captain America, and did that entire kind of very, what's called the, I think the podcast is like when comics got political. And Captain America very much got political, and it reflected the Nixon years and Watergate. And But Steve Englehart did not always script every issue. He would plot, and then Mike Friedrich would script, or Mike Friedrich would plot, and Steve Englehart would script. And this is something that is common going back to Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Jerry Conway. Um, scripting over a plot was commonplace. It was part of the job. It was part of the assignment. It was, it was a not shameful... Uh, thing to do, but it was the final touch after the story had been written. The story dictated, again, the story was in the Captain America stories that Steve Rogers so throttled but by what he had seen by the President of the United States, who they didn't come out right and say it was Nixon in the comics during the Watergate era, but he had done murderous things, and so he kills himself in the Oval Office in front of Captain America, which Captain America is so horrified by everything that he's seen and the fact that the you know deranged evil was was all the way into the you know American U.S. political system that he cast off his identity as Captain America and he became this new character named Nomad. That is the story, the dialogue, the specific dialogue of no, like don't shoot yourself. That's that's script. Um, sometimes Englehart would do the story and the script. Sometimes someone else would do it. Sometimes he would do the script for someone else. Again, this is just how it was throughout comics, whether it was Captain America, Fantastic Four, The Avengers. You know, we, I employed the same, I still do. I employ the same on Deadpool Bad Blood or the sequel Batter Blood or on Snake Eyes, which I just recently did, as I've told you. I have always worked on Captain America. I wrote the stories. I gave the scripting to Joseph Loeb III, known as Jeff Loeb. On X-Force and New Mutants, when I took over, I wrote the stories, introducing the characters, introducing you to the identity and the mission that Deadpool represented and to the mission Cable had um, to, to all of the different characters that came in and out, Shatterstar, Feral, Domino, the externals. I did not have time to, to commit to putting the dialogue, so I gave it to someone else as I have still as I am still imparting. And this suddenly became something that was diminished. Jim Lee on X-Men was having Scott Lobdell do the same thing, apply script to his stories, the dialogue, the word balloons. But the story is what you draw from. Without the story, there's nothing to draw. Kurt Busiek had written uh, two full issues, but he hadn't applied all of the dialogue. It wasn't full script. It was more plot method. He was going to refine the dialogue when the pages were drawn. 
I said, I've got these in the drawer. This would be a great compliment for us to sell while I'm doing Youngblood Bloodsport, which I then set forth to do. I hired Chad and Eric Walker, known to us as the Walker Brothers, two guys who were really super talented. They came from the video game industry. They showed it. They showed me their work. They had great musculature, great figure work, great storytelling. And I decided to go down this, um, this path with them where they would draw the Kurt Busiek written Youngblood Year One. We wanted to change the name to Youngblood Genesis. I didn't feel like Young Youngblood Year One rolled off the tongue anymore. Youngblood Genesis. So, in addition to my Youngblood Bloodsport with Mark Miller, we were going to go out and publish simultaneously at the same time Youngblood Genesis, written by Kurt Busiek, with art by the Walker Brothers. Except, who am I going to get the script over Kurt, uh, 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 Kurt's stuff? Well, I got a fledgling young writer named Brandon uh, Thomas who jumped on board. And, uh, and, and, and read Kurt's stories, saw that they were from Kurt. I sent him Xerox copies that I scanned them, sent him via email, um, so that he could read them so that he would know what was going on. Um, the, the story was very refined. It is very, uh, very much, uh, you know, very specific to what Kurt described, given the pacing and the, uh, uh, direction that he took my characters, the Youngblood characters. And that was, you know visualized by Chad and Eric Walker. And then myself and Dan Freya came in and uh, helped on some of the inking of the pages. And we rounded out those two issues. Well, during this time, when we announced this, and I've got to bring this up because it was so bullshit, is that Busick took to his, you know, whatever was, um, this is before social media. This is like, you know, you could talk to the media. And again, it was limited in where if the media wanted to control the narrative, you had to go around and go to all the different me- uh, uh, message boards, which there were a plenty of which I was a member of many. But Kurt Busiek tries to put forth that he is not in fact the writer of this, which I said, then what did I pay you for? And and and, and upon sharing the, 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 the story pages, it just seemed that Kurt did not want the story to be out there as if he didn't really, what it really felt like he did not want me to capitalize on the work that I had paid him to do years prior, which seemed kind of weird to me. But that's how it made me feel. And he continually... Um, uh, uh, put forth that it wasn't a finished project when product when it, uh, in fact the story would be credited to Kurt because that's what he wrote he wrote the story and Brandon Thomas would come and provide the finished dialogue over the art that was generated 100% from reading and interpreting the story just as you would read and interpret any story that you get artists all over the comic world today are getting stories that they will then interpret visually picking angles picking shots there was no, we didn't add a single thing to those Kurt Busiek stories. And the reason I'm telling you this is it was funny to me. It was like, well, wait, what, why, why can't you just own the fact that you did this for me? You, you took the checks, you received the payments. Um, we did not alter these stories in any way, shape, or form. We gave them to the artists, but the final dialogue, just like how it was very much done in the comic book world for so long. And sidebar, the reason people stop doing or being so eager, although people will do them now all the time, is because... There became a name, not developed by me, but it was going around called Script Bitch. You're a Script Bitch. Ah, oh, you're just a Script Bitch. And then it became like, I need to be doing the story and the script. Because if I'm not, if I'm just doing the script over an artist, I'm some artist's Script Bitch. Well, we never saw it that way. Artists never saw it that way. We, I don't refer to anyone who does script over my work as Script Bitch. Um, I, I think they have a role that they bring that um, the better the dialogue and the captions, the better everything carries. And, and and no one wants to demean them, and I have never once referred to someone who does that job. I would not refer to Marv Wolfman or Jeff Loeb or Len Wein or any of these people who do this. But in this case, we had Brandon Thomas come on board, do the script, and lo and behold, before you know it, despite Kurt Busiek's, you know, uh, trying to, really, it felt like he was souring the reception of this, but I, I just knew that everyone knows that I created Youngblood, these are my characters. This is a story that we did generous advertising on. I advertised Youngblood Year One with Kurt. There was It was the cover of one of the Image magazines that month that it was coming out. Again, I was not able to rise up and draw it at the time. I had to pull the plug on it. But now we're putting forth. So we are going out with two books, Youngblood Bloodsport and Youngblood Genesis Issue 1. And let me tell you, this was met with overwhelming success. I cannot tell you how much fun it was to bring these two books to life. We had them printed locally. 
uh, up in Pomona. I went there every day for two days as they printed the entirety of the Youngblood Bloodsport run and the entirety of the Youngblood Genesis run. I don't think it would have been possible had I not been able to work hand-in-hand with the printer and, and look at the printing and just see how amazing the books came out. And after 48 hours, we had a full allotment, all the different covers, all the different um, you know books, and we were about to meet the summer season. And Arcade Comics had bought a booth at San Diego Comic-Con, and that is where we were going to launch. And Arcade Comics was going to go to Chicago, and we were hitting up all manner of different conventions. And we put out there that we are bringing the Mark Miller, Rob Liefeld, Kurt Busiek, Chad Walker, Eric Walker, versions of these Youngblood books, which were previously my biggest selling titles. We're bringing them direct to consumer. You can't get them from the catalog. You cannot obtain them through the distributor, through traditional means. You'll have to buy them from us directly. We also put out to retailers that they could buy in bulk from us. Now, what happened is uh, there was a giant chain in Texas uh, that ended up buying thousands of, of copies of Youngblood from us that they said that they would distribute to an entire network that they um, that, that they represent um, in the South. And, and they put forth such a giant order. I'm, I want to say like, I mean, I know it was over 5,000 copies. Chuck Rosansky from Mile High Comics came forth and said, I will also take several thousand of both product and I'll sell them in tandem. I will put them out. And they bought them directly from myself and Jimmy J. And this was the beginning of a giant, you know, snowball, you know, rolling downhill. I mean, it it was enormous. The amount of uh, success that these books were met with. After those initial convention appearances, I did, in fact, drive to different stores in my county. Jimmy J drive to stores in the L.A. County, and it was so fun. I would pull up to the store. I would pop the trunk. I would grab the product, the boxes. I would bring them in. I'd say, you might have heard of this. This is my new series. You can't get it through the distributor, but would you like to buy copies for me? The retailer would look at them and say, could I take 50 of this and 50 of this? We really encouraged buying in tandem so that you would buy both the Genesis and the Bloodsport. And you guys, it was one of the, if not the most fun time in the history of my comic book world. At this point, at, at in 2003, I have been in the comic book world for 16 years. And I am, you know, I have, I have become a known brand. And I am bringing other known brands with me in the form of Mark Miller and Kurt Busiek. And I am saying, this is the way that you are going to buy the comics for me. Direct to consumer, direct to retail. And Jimmy and I played the distribution game the entire time. We went on and did another issue of Youngblood Genesis and a preview edition of Youngblood Bloodsport number two. And then we did a brand new Youngblood series. I think it was called Youngblood Imperial. Um, and I hired a very young Robert Kirkman to draw, to to write that first issue and, 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 and issues following that. And we were successfully distributing these ourselves to stores, a network of stores that were buying directly from us. And this was a very exciting time. And again, I'm super, super proud of the work. The conventions, you can buy them directly from me only. You couldn't go to your store in New England. You had to get them from us. The store had to buy them from us. So again, we would give them the same terms that a diamond or another distributor at the time would give them. Basically 50% off cover. Here's your copies. It was so much fun. It was a part of my life that I, I cannot tell you I didn't feel like I needed it, but I wanted it. And let me tell you something. It's coming back because that's the world we're living in now. When you get into crowdfunding, it's been back. It's been back for a decade. Crowdfunding is direct to consumer. You're like, Lifefield, this is happening now. Of course it is. Um, the, the crowdfunding aspects of comic books are allowing you to order directly from your favorite creators. And I do not see this mechanism turning back. Certainly the distribution networks, but I've talked on this, you know, on this podcast, one of the big deals about having one distributor was you got to beat your chest and say, I am the number one book at this distributor, which distributes everybody. But for over two years, no, that hasn't been the case. DC Comics went with a publisher, uh, I believe named Lunar. Marvel Comics is now primarily distributed for the best price, the best discount through Penguin Books, which is a large publishing faction. And several other uh, independent uh, image comics, boom comics, they're still going through diamond, but retailers aren't thrilled about having three options. They preferred the one, but the robbery of the one is that Marvel no longer is ranked 
alongside Image and the others because they aren't a primary. Diamond can't give a proper reflection of those sales because they're not the primary carrier. Lunar is the exclusive carrier of DC, so you can't get a ranking to see how your book... So so now the power, the, the beating of the chest is over. You can't say, I'm dominating this guy because now the distribution networks are eliminated. And many people believe that some of what went into DC Comics getting their own distribution was a way that they did not have to look up at Marvel any, any further. Going back an hour to Marvel outsells DC almost exclusively all the time. Well, if you're not ranked with them anymore, you don't have to show your box, your bosses that you're losing to Spider-Man and Hulk and the Avengers family. You can just go, here's our sales. We are the only product coming out of Lunar Distribution. You can say Liefeld, that, that's conspiratorial talk. I'm not the one telling me those things. Those are There are dozens of, of, of brighter minds than me who, are, who have been telling me this for the last two years. It was a way, again, to preserve when you're being downsized and your company is evaluating your worth, maybe you know, showing that you're not even placing a book in the top 10 isn't a good idea. Maybe you just make up your own chart and that's where you're dominating. Regardless, direct to consumer via uh, uh, all the different crowdfunding platforms or just direct from a website. Because I'm going to tell you, my project that I have coming out in the next six months will be again back to the Youngblood Bloodsport model. You will only be able to buy it from me directly. I will offer it on my website. I will offer it through social media. I will offer it directly to some stores. But I am going to control the distribution and the receipt of that product. Why? Because I can because I don't need some larger mechanism. I can just have fun controlling it. And maybe when you go to see me at a store, at, at, at a store signing or at a convention stop, I'll have that product with me. And it will, I will be returning to this entire period that I am sharing with you now. Now, what happened? What happened was Marvel Comics then in 2004 made me, in, 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 in honestly, uh, in, in Godfather terms, an offer I couldn't refuse. They kept knocking on my door and they said, we love this young blood blood sport so much. Would you come back? Would you do young? Would you would you do X Force? Would you do X Force? Would you do Deadpool? Would you do all this stuff? Would you do covers for us? And uh, again, coming out of retirement, I was overwhelmed. My love for X Force—they're kind of my firstborn—and all those characters: Cable, Deadpool, Shatterstar, Domino. I poured myself into and got lost into bringing those books back and put the blood sport stuff on the side. And that was absolutely a mismanagement on my end. There's no way to justify it. I'm very proud of the work, but it is in fact unfinished. So I can't sit here and boast to you of the completion of this, but I do believe that one day it will be um, um, completed and we'll talk about that more in a follow-up episode. But as we sit right here where we are now, the reason that I uh, pivoted off was because, because I became distracted and I was made an offer. I could not refuse creatively, financially to come back and rejoin and be part of the Marvel family uh, with all the characters that I had created for them a decade prior. So that became sort of the thing that consumed me for the next several years, which then turned into way more Deadpool work, the launch of the Deadpool core, Lady Deadpool, all that stuff. Um, it, it really became a very um, fun period of my life. And again, sometimes us artists were a little emotional and we kind of go with what is making us feel the most fun at some time, at, at any point in time. And, and I've certainly tried to be more responsible in, in the way that I have um, creatively handled myself going forward, but we do get carried away at some point in time. But going direct to consumer was a fantastic, super fun chapter of my life. And it was a bit of a disruptor um, in, in terms of the business when you realize that you can go outside the system and if you have a product and a name and, 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 and the ability to move that product, um, you can do it direct. And that was a precursor to everything. There's, there's no social media. If we had social media during the time of Youngblood Bloodsport, I cannot even begin to tell you how many copies we would have moved given the heat of Mark Miller, who I think really was correctly cast in the Quentin Tarantino role. And given the popularity of those characters, my affiliation with those characters, the um, popularity of my own work, given had there been a Facebook and a Twitter and an Instagram, there was nothing. There was just message boards. And news outlets. That's it. You can make a press release. Given today's uh, structure, we would have moved triple the amount. It, it, it was it was incredible. What a fun opportunity that I had with Jimmy J. Those couple of years that we were rolling with Arcade were super, uh, r ridiculously fun, ridiculously um, just educational. 
And 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 yet it, it it showed me a glimpse of what again we are living in today, direct to consumer movies, music directly into our devices, into our homes, where we can circumvent the theater experience if we don't enjoy it. And again, that is not a, that's I don't mean for that to be a hot button topic, but that's just kind of where I'm at at this point. I, I like direct to consumer. I I intend to pursue it again, and I will. And that is what my next project will be, um, and it will be exciting because this time I will get to utilize all of the different social media outlets that are out there. So uh, really the sky's the limit. If you are a creative person and I get asked all the time, what would you do? What would you do? There is no um, holding back your ability to find your own audience. Now that doesn't mean it's going to happen magically. You have to work at it. You have to make the work good. And then you have to put a lot of uh, elbow grease into, into moving it and getting it. And sometimes you have to be shameless and you have to push that publish button on that post, on that tweet, on that whatever to get people to look at your eye, to, to get the eyeballs that you need that will generate the interest to get to the link to order the product. But it's fun. It can be so fulfilling and I encourage you. So today, this is my story of when I went full disruptive as a distributor beyond just a publisher. And it was a blast and I am so thankful that I was able to to just relive that and share that with you guys. And if you were there in 2003, 2004, and you were buying these books, thank you. Uh, I know we had great, again, great success with all the different networks of stores. Um, uh, all total, in, in, in case you're looking for a total, uh, we moved around 70,000 units and it was a giant undertaking. We, we really um, had tremendous success as, as in, in this model and, and just going direct to retail and consumer. So, so, uh, didn't want to wrap this up without mentioning that, but you guys, the beat goes on. Pop culture never dies. Comic books are the fuel, uh, that, 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 that is powering the vehicle right now. You feel it, you feel it in your bones, you know, it's true. And so, uh, so again, this is just kind of one aspect that I wanted to share to you today, the way, uh, and, and, and the time that myself and Jimmy J, we went full disruptor mode and, and direct to consumer was, was, was something that was just on the horizon there. And now it is absolutely here to stay. And, and, and I think there are really exciting options still to come. I do. I think there are really exciting options still to come. One thing is for certain, and that is that nothing stays the same. Everything is always changing, especially with all these advances in technology. We are just, I, I think at the beginning of this all new era of reaching each other more, um, immediately effectively than than ever before and that's not to say that i don't appreciate stores and all the different outlets uh, again i i enjoy just you know supplying them direct it's it's getting easier and easier and and so we'll we'll wait and see how this continues to uh expand uh but again direct to consumer pretty fun pretty fun stuff we uh have reached the end of this episode and at the end of this episode is where i read your reviews, your comments. Uh, we really need, uh, and, and I've been stressing this since I discovered a year ago into the second season, how influential the reviews that you guys place on the, on the different platforms are and the rankings, the five stars, the recommendations. It's all so important. I read them at the end of every show. You guys are so great in contacting me and sharing your love for this show, which is what is keeping me going. And, uh, just, just, uh, really is sometimes, you know, a, a, a few kind words is, is, is all you need. And I am here to share your few kind words that you're sharing with me, uh, here on this show. Again, you leave them. Uh, I read them, uh, that that's how it works. We do it at the, the, the end of every show. This is from Pat Brickson, B-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Pat Brickson. It's brief. I love it. It's five stars. It says nostalgia with passion, exclamation point. Got to have that exclamation point. I'm a child of the seventies and shared many of Rob's experiences. He expresses my feelings, but amplified times 10% or amplified times 10. Sorry. <laughs> he expresses my feelings, but amplified times 10. Thank you, Rob, for stirring these wonderful memories and reigniting my own excitement. Pat, it is my absolute pleasure. Comic books just seem to be the basis of so much, and I'm so thankful that I was born in an era where I was, you know, really at the groundswell of so much of what has turned out to be the bedrock of, of all of this, you know, comic book to pop culture explosion. So thank you so much. Here's another interesting uh uh, comment review that was shared with me and you guys, I, I was just, it, I was so, um, you know, 
moved by it. And th- last week, these episodes, you guys, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you guys how, um, how amazed I am at, at, at the, at the response that you guys are giving these shows. The, the, the last couple shows have been the biggest, uh, that, that we've ever had. So thank you so much for sharing. David Jacoy, J-A-K-O-I, shared with me. Rob, I just started to listen to your latest observations podcast about corporate DC. This is one of the recent episodes. As someone who is currently and has been working in corporate environments for 15 years, I must say you are spot on. For any owners of DC, the bottom line comes from licensing and other media projects, products. A comic book is only the IP. The money it brings and cost is abysmal compared to a TV show or a movie. They probably make more money on Batman mugs in a year than they do on Batman comics. It's just a matter of a leadership style and how it is and how involved they want to be in the creative process. It is simply a wonder if good comics are actually being made at all. Thankfully, there are always editors who are hiring the real talent. This is just his observation upon reading a uh, recent episode I did on, I did on the, you know, decade of, of, of chaos that, that has been going on at Warner Brothers and at DC Comics. So thank you, David Jacoy, for sharing that, reaching out immediately after the podcast and sharing this and, and sharing his um, really affirmation that, that that episode, I really hesitate sometimes to do that more topical stuff, but boy, um, it really seems to get the conversation starting. And that's what we're here about. This is Rob Observations. We're here to talk. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks for uh, leaving all the love and all the um, support that you guys do. Guys, I am all over social media on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, at Robert Liefeld. I have a blue check, which means that I'm not, I'm the real guy. You're not being scammed. I, I love talking to you guys already just today. So many great conversations happening over on Twitter. I love talking comics, uh, different eras, different titles, different influences. I love it. I love talking to you guys. That's really the blessing of that platform. On Instagram, I love reading your your comments, your DMs, uh, all your messaging. Thank you so much. Over there, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Very easy to access. Again, another blue check tells you it's really me. Thank you for interacting with me on any of these platforms. This show, Observations with Rob Liefeld, is the name of a dedicated page at Facebook. Find it, like it, leave a comment. I'll read it. I'll I'll I'll, I'll like it back. Um, thank you for giving this platform, this show, a, a support across all these platforms. I could not be more grateful. Thank you so much for joining with me, uh, joining with me on each and every episode. This is the time where, at the end of the show, you know how how important it is to me that I share, and I want you to hear how much uh, I care about your well-being. I want you to get rest, get sleep. Um, play a good game, eat good food, you know, and by game, I mean one of your consoles, one of your, you know, whatever games on your iPhone, uh, read good comics, novels, watch fun movies, streaming, just relax, kick back. This has been a really crazy period in the history of mankind and you deserve to take a break and to, uh, to, to just to chill. Okay. So so, so let's do that together. Let's pledge to do that together. And, and I hope that you circle back here um, and find us again because for absolute certain, we are going to talk again real soon.